This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It only took us 29 episodes, but we are finally to hockey here on Play-By-Play Cast. Welcome back into the podcast, everybody. Thanks for clicking subscribe, hitting download, and joining us again on a Friday morning. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, with the housekeeping out of the way early, you can hit us up on Twitter at PXPCast. You can use the hashtag PXPCast. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T, or you can email me as well. Um, my email's out there on the internet. Uh, I've yet to give it out, as I've said many times on the podcast, but uh, many of you continue to find it. So uh, may the challenge be yours, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Uh, hockey, though, is our topic of conversation here on episode 29 of Play by Play Cast. And uh, I'm not particularly a hockey guy when it comes to broadcasting. I've done a handful of games. When I was in college, Syracuse. Uh, fairly controversially at the time, uh, dropped swimming, both men's and women's swimming, and added women's hockey and got the chance to broadcast the first game in Syracuse women's hockey history and, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight games by the time I was done, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, but my, my hockey broadcasting is fairly limited. I remember Syracuse played at Colgate that very first game, scored a goal within the first 15 seconds of the program's history, um, I was doing color commentary for that moment, and uh, of course I was qualified to not be doing that, um, but, it, but it's an interesting note based on who our guest is uh, here this morning. His name's Pete Weber. He's the longtime voice of the uh, Nashville Predators, not the bowler Pete Weber, by the way, uh, probably the more, I don't want to say more, but uh, most famous of the Pete Webbers, just because he's the guy that's always on ESPN with the, the bowling and the reactions and the... They stole D-Generation X's sign and all that jazz. Uh, no, this is a different Pete Weber. Uh, still quite full of personality, though. And you'll hear that come out in the interview. Uh, but Pete is the first and only voice that the Nashville Predators have known. He's uh, bounced between radio and TV simulcasts throughout his career. But he was the guy, when the Predators started in 1998, who was their voice. They took him from Buffalo, where he was... Uh, kind of a jack-of-all-trades in the market. Uh, did a lot of different things, including some baseball play-by-play with the Buffalo Bisons, which we will get into. Um, but Pete is a guy that took, as we continue to find out on this podcast, a very different route. Uh, was a color commentator for hockey. When he got his first break in the NHL, he worked uh, with the Los Angeles Kings as a color commentator for the great Bob Miller. And and. Pete says it quite frankly. I, I, I said, hey, that's not the most usual path. And he goes, what, for a, a non-jock to be a, a major league color analyst? Yeah, of course not. Um, but that was the path that was presented to him. It was the path that worked for him. And as time has gone on, he's worked in the NHL. He's worked in professional baseball uh, at the AAA level. He's worked at the NBA level. He's worked in the NFL level and then uh, has worked in major college athletics as well. 
his time in Buffalo, got involved at uh, UB, got involved at St. Bonaventure. Uh, Pete's done a lot of really uh, cool and interesting things that have gotten him to be uh, the the voice that people associate with Nashville Predators hockey, as Pete will tell you here in a little bit, for better or for worse in some situations. Really great guy, really great personality. I think that shows you're going to hear a lot of that in our interview. Just kind of one-handed, off-the-cuff quips that he comes up with quickly. There's a, a wittiness uh, to him, but also then to his broadcasting. And, and he talks about that and how to, how to hit the right mix of that so people don't take you off as hokey, but they do take you off as, as funny to let your personality show uh, for who you truly, really are. A lot of really interesting things to get to on a lot of those different notes and flavors here with Pete Weber. But where we started was quite merely the fact that he is the voice of Nashville hockey. That when the Predators began in the late 90s, Pete Weber was their guy. And what it's like to be the voice associated with a team. Pete Weber is our first hockey guest here on Play by Play Cast. Yeah, that was, was always a goal of mine. And I was trying to either latch on with one of the expansion baseball teams of the 90s or a hockey club. Uh, my loyalties are pretty evenly split between the two sports as to which drives my uh, my passion for the games and passion for the job. So this seemed to be too easy, and thus I figured there's no way it would have happened. Uh, but, you know, there I was, you know, 20 years in Buffalo, and I'm sitting upstairs in my office in Kenmore, New York, and uh, looking at Prodigy. This is going to take you back in time. And the Prodigy News Service, I think on my 1,200-baud modem, uh, came up with, hey, the NHL is awarding provisional franchises to Nashville, Atlanta, Columbus, and Minnesota. And this was in, uh, I'm going to say, May of 97. And then... I said, okay, my wife's family had been for a long time in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I'm thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice to knock my travel time down for the holidays significantly and see if there's a possibility in Nashville? So uh, the very next day I was at FedEx uh, pursuing the story further for who the uh, founding owner of the Predators was going to be, Craig Leopold, and found he was at he had a company he had started Rainfair in Racine, Wisconsin. And I FedExed my materials to him the next day and just began following up. And as I followed up, these things fell into place. Uh, Jerry Helper became in the fall of ninety seven the vice president of communications for the team. I had worked with him with the Buffalo Sabres in the early eighties before he left for the NHL office, and then subsequently the Tampa Bay Lightning. How did the Tampa Bay Lightning play in? Well, he worked with that coach at the time named Terry Crisp, and he thought that the two of us, as the fall of 98 approached, would be a pretty good team, that we'd have good chemistry. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, Terry never remembers any of the interviews I had with him <laughs> when he was coaching Calgary or when he was, uh, for that matter, when he was playing for the Philadelphia Flyers or when he was coaching the Tampa Bay Lightning. Excuse me, slug of water here. This is good for a podcast. <laughs> it's actually, it's a podcast, and I feel like that makes it seem more authentic. Yeah, exactly. You can be honest with everything. <laughs> so, uh, and then visiting uh, Claudia's parents in Knoxville around 4th of July, 98, just grabbed my father-in-law's car and came over to what was then just known as Nashville Arena 
and went into the, shall we say, sketchily laid out with wires hanging from the ceiling offices of the Predators and spoke with the president, Jack Diller, and uh, then Tom Ward, who was in charge of marketing and so on. As we know, uh, pro sports franchises, much of it generates from the marketing and business sides anyway. Uh, talked with them. I had already met with Craig Leopold and Jack Diller at the NHL draft, which conveniently for me was in Buffalo that year. And, and uh, so got together with them quite a bit, did a couple of features for the old Empire Sports Network on the building of the Predators. And then by August, I got the offer. And on uh, September 12th, uh, I was here for the first day of the first training camp. One week later, on the air doing the first game. Now, how much fun has it been? Uh, better than I had imagined. Uh, and I was familiar with Nashville previously from my baseball. Uh, Buffalo Bisons, those games I did for, what, 15 years, came into Nashville for 10 years. They were both members of the American Association before the American Association was an independent uh, baseball clubs. And so uh, usually a minimum of three trips a year, uh, especially when we have the overlap with the International League, and but usually four. So I was familiar with the team, uh, familiar with the town. Uh, and I got to tell you, the familiarity with that town, that town no longer exists. What has morphed here has been incredible to watch. Uh, at that point in time, and when I first came here for baseball, well, I was at the winter meetings in 83 at Opryland Hotel. But to work series in 85, uh, Nashville had Second Avenue was like a ghost town. Uh, there were the honky-tonks up and down Broadway. But uh, that was about it. Uh, in my random access memory upstairs right now, I, I have a time lapse of what has been an incredible growth downtown. And it's, it's been great to be part of that and to think that the hockey club has played a, such a significant role in it. What's it been like for you um, creating that, that connection with a fan base, too, so that, I mean, when they think Predators hockey, in a lot of respects, I'm sure they associate Pete Weber with it uh, maybe more or as much as anything else. Uh, so when they lose, that's tough, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, but, uh, no, I understand your question there. It, I don't think any announcer could, uh, imagine anything more gratifying than that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, every now and then it can get a little embarrassing when you're searching or, or, or going out to buy toilet seats at home Depot <laughs> and people coming up to talk hockey, but in a way, that also makes it as genuine as this podcast. It's just true conversation. People have been interested uh, from the outset, and uh, that has been what has been so much fun for me. I mean, that that has been uh, to watch it grow, uh, to nurture it certainly a little bit, but to watch it grow and get to this point, and I'm sorry for various alarms coming on around me. There you uh, go. This is... Uh, this has been a great deal of fun, and, and again, more than I could have hoped for. I'm curious about hockey play-by-play, -play. Um, and and one yep. of the things I'm curious about is, uh, take it for what it's worth, there was a, there was like a blog post that that ranked all the NHL broadcasters, and you were in their top five. So, um, but but the thing the thing that they had said about you, which I thought was more important, that was on my. That's what my wife wrote. But okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, the thing that I thought was more important than, than the numerical aspect of it was the, the, the things that they said about people. And the one thing that they said about you was uh, the exact quote was, I've never heard him stumble over a call, which I thought, A, was interesting just in its own right, but B, because of hockey as well, 
things happen at such a, uh, such a fever pitch. How do you stay on top of things and do it so accurately and so colorfully when it's happening 95,000 miles an hour? I guess the best thing is you can't think about that. And, and I think that having done so many sports, I think uh, having helped out Chick Hearn on the Lakers when Pat Riley left the booth and we had Paul Westhead's breakneck approach <laughs> to putting up the shots <laughs> like every six or seven seconds, that helped a lot. Uh, doing the uh, National Lacrosse League, the indoor league uh, in Buffalo with the old Buffalo Bandits and the original, I'm going to call him John Tavares, as opposed to his nephew, the star of the New York Islanders right now, John Tavares, uh, that speed I got accelerated sort of naturally that way. And I also think that I probably broke into hockey at a good time. Years ago, I joined Bob Miller with the LA Kings in 78. I was his color commentator. And then somebody sent me a video like two weeks ago of a playoff game between the Kings and Edmonton Oilers. Final score, 10-8. Now, you're, you have to be thinking, that must have been just breakneck speed. But I look at it, and in the context of the way the game is played in the NHL today, that seemed almost like slow-mo to me. I, I, I thought it was like what would happen when my wife would come in the baseball booth and not know too much yet and say, boy, this game's really moving along. I say, okay, Claudia, I'll be home after the 18th <laughs> inning. Oh, I overestimated. It was only 14 uh, that night. But uh, about little jinxes you don't want to break through against. So, and believe me, I have stumbled over many a call. I am fortunate that the reviewer in that case never caught any of those. <laughs> and, and all of us get tongue-tied. I, I mean, I can send you examples. I even got, would get tongue-tied over a, a slow dribbler down the third baseline that you know was effectively a swinging bunt, uh, that sort of thing. But the idea is I always try to uh, keep myself back a little bit and always remember – Wayne Gretzky saying the most successful at this sport on the ice are those who can slow the game down for themselves. Doesn't necessarily mean the pace is slow, but they don't allow themselves to get too caught up in the emotion. How do you play with pace, if I can steal a sports uh, analogy yeah. to it, uh, to the standpoint of not – a lot of people, especially younger broadcasters, and I'm very much still guilty of this a lot, talk too quickly when things develop – to be able to describe yeah. something happening so fast in a not dumbed down manner because you want to get as much description as possible, but in a still understandable manner. Yeah, that that is a trick. And I, you know, the best way I will do for myself every now and then is just pick up a novel with a lot of dialogue in it. This was something taught to me by my program director at WBEN in Buffalo 30 some years ago, Bob Wood. Because I was, I think I was extremely guilty of speaking too fast. I thought I was auditioning to be an auctioneer when I would listen to, to the tapes afterward. And read the dialogue and add inflection and I, uh, emphasis of different uh, emotions and so on. And I think that's helped me a great deal in that regard. So that when the immediacy of what you're describing or attempting to describe takes over – that little background kicks in for you a little bit. Why is it? I, I've read that. I, I know you, you've done both TV, you've done radio with, with the Predators too, and I, I know you like the radio side of it better. I'm curious, the TV side of it, um, why is there more description in TV hockey play-by-play -play than there is in a lot of other things? 
I think that really probably is from Canadian tradition. Okay. That's what everybody looks at. Um, Hockey night in Canada, and believe you me, I've enjoyed it for years living on the border in both Buffalo and Seattle, uh, being able to watch that on a regular basis long before the satellite deliveries that we have now. And I just think it's that was always a part of it. And we have two NHL teams that are still simulcasting. And we simulcast for about 10 of our first uh, 11 seasons here. Uh, so I always felt that in that situation, and we simulcast in L.A. when I was with Bob Miller, that you can't cheat the radio audience. And so now it is Buffalo and Dallas who do the simulcast approach to the game. And I, uh, that is part of it. But uh, really, the big thing to do on television is to caption, to identify. You don't need to do the, do the geography of the game that much. Uh, and you actually probably have a chance to do a little bit more about the players on radio. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to say, here's a fifth round draft choice, uh, you know, 33rd overall uh, uh, coming up the ice on the right wing side. You, you just can't do that. But uh, on radio, I think it's a little bit easier. And, you know, you've probably heard all the Vince Squ- Scully quotes from this last summer, his last summer on the air for all of us, about how he really appreciates the radio the most because you're given a blank canvas. You're given the palette of paints. Uh, you can mix. You can match. But you are the one in charge. On television, you are merely captioning what the producer-director put up on that screen in front of you. And sometimes that's not particularly applicable to the way the game is going. It's all it's interesting, just from a, the whole thing, from an economy of words standpoint and a painting of pictures standpoint, um, just intrigues me. Uh, I have to try the – people don't read out loud to themselves anymore, I feel like, too, by the way, so – uh, I feel like that's hard to yeah. there aren't any newspapers left. <laughs> I, I feel like that's that's something that that comes into play a lot that could actually help. So I appreciate you having gone down uh, that road with me here, too. Um, if I can go big picture with you. Yeah. Uh, take me back to kind of the beginning of how how you I, mean, it's, it, I, I understand it's a long path for everybody and a different path for everybody. But how you kind of created the the path that got you to where you are just in terms of putting a lot of different things together, taking some mm-hmm. different opportunities, being a color guy, which is something mm-hmm. that you, you probably don't see uh, as a break-in avenue a lot anymore. Uh, Not for a non-jock. Yeah, exactly. How all of those things kind of came together um, to create that perfect path that wound up putting you in Nashville. Is there a perfect path? Okay. <laughs> uh, I've, I've really envisioned, first of all, that I would be a writer. But I, and I think my inclination to write probably has uh, helped me out being on the air quite a bit because you learn to edit yourself. And I I think that's a big part of that process. So I'm going to go with writing, first of all. I'm going to go with uh, majoring in in modern languages. Uh, At Notre Dame, I spent my sophomore year overseas at the University of Innsbruck uh, and then came back and began working at the campus radio station. I was able to graduate early because all my courses at the University of Innsbruck were taught in German, so I became a German major because a sports directorship opened up in my hometown of Galesburg, Illinois, and it opened up at mid-year. So I graduated early and took that job. Okay, that's a part of that foundation. Uh, Well, another part of the foundation would be my older brother. My brother is 10 years older than I am, 
And uh, we would watch the Huntley Brinkley report, the NBC Nightly News, back when it was only 15 minutes long and overlapped with the local 15-minute newscast, uh, you know, long before we ever thought of cable news networks. <laughs> but in, in any case, we would sort of imitate Chet Huntley and David Brinkley back and forth at each other, and that sort of caught my my spirit. And uh, I was David Brinkley and Chet, and this is it for tonight. Good night for NBC News. And as a kid, the big console radio, and I'm going to really sound like an old-timer here because the same story I got from Vince Scully and from longtime Buffalo Bills coach Marv Levy was being captivated by the sound of the crowd from these huge speakered living room console radios and going into it that way. Okay, for me, it was listening to Harry Carey and Jack Buck do the Cardinals games. And I very quickly realized while listening to them that it didn't seem to me, while I knew it was a job, that they were working. They enjoyed what they were doing so much. So that sort of propelled me on this path. Uh, I went in high school, uh, my senior year, I pinched a nerve in my neck, could not play football that year. And so I hired on with a local newspaper, the Galesburg Register Mail, Joe Morrissey, the sports editor who just passed away in this last year, had me taking calls on the prep games. And then after a while, sent me out to cover some games. When I was covering one of those early games, uh, in the Midwest, in Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, uh, there are usually so many, at least at that point in time, uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, so many local stations doing the games. I mean, there might be four stations from two cities doing one game because of uh, we didn't think about exclusivity back then. And so one of them, again, I was sitting right next to this one, WAIK Radio, and all of a sudden, uh, one of the uh, commentators, the play-by-play guy, had a bad attack of having had too much coffee and had to find a restroom quickly. So he handed the mic to me. And uh, afterward, I thought, boy, that felt comfortable. <laughs> now, had I not been enamored of listening to Harry Carey and Jack Buck and then going across the AM dial at night with all the 50,000-watt clear channels carrying the games, who knows? Maybe that would not have felt as great for me. So that while I was still in high school. And then I go to Notre Dame, uh, get involved in campus radio. We had, what, 40 guys on the sports staff. Oh, wow. And it was a carrier current AM station that fed both campuses, Notre Dame and St. Mary's College across the way. Uh, and Joe Garagiola Jr. was our sports director. Uh, Joe Sr. would come and shoot the bull with us every now and then during various parts of the year. Uh, when he wasn't doing Sale of the Century or the Today Show or the Major League Game of the Week. Uh, and we had uh, uh, other guys who've gone on. Now, one of the guys who was behind me there, uh, who then followed me up doing Notre Dame hockey in the commercial station, is now the voice of the San Francisco 49ers, Ted Robinson. Uh, and, of course, you've probably seen him do a little bit of tennis work, U.S. Open, French Open, etc. Uh, but uh, so there were a lot of us all involved in this. And a beautiful thing I thought there. The really beautiful thing, Joel, was we, and I have a great respect for what's happened at Syracuse, but we had no buddy, no professor telling us how to do what we were attempting to do. We had to make our own mistakes, learn on our own, and I think in that fashion the, the lessons are, are far better absorbed. 
So then I left school uh, midway through my senior year, ready to graduate. Uh, took the broadcasting job there. I was there for a year. Uh, then I got fired because I was involved with a family friend who was trying to uh, start what would be a competing radio station in town. So conflict of interest, right? I decided then, first of all, get my first class radio engineering license. So I go to a school in Chicago, which was run by the guys at CBS who had done the Nixon-Kennedy debates in 1960, uh, which was fascinating for me having grown up in a Democratic uh, household. <laughs> we could not read the Chicago Tribune. By God, that's a Republican newspaper, Pete. Uh, so – uh, did that and then decided after that had been finished and realizing how long the FCC process was going to require, uh, went back to Notre Dame, was able to design a master's in communications program where I was uh, – excuse me, I'm just going to tell somebody to message me uh, – that I uh, was able to do the weekend TV sports on WNDU and then Notre Dame hockey. Uh, which was fantastic for me. And here's the historical perspective. The day I went in to interview for the job at WNDU was I was sitting in the lobby waiting for the program director to come out. And what happens? NBC breaks in and Hank Aaron has just tied Babe Ruth with a home run off Jack Billingham in Cincinnati. And uh, so uh, it's amazing how all these historical things get tied in. But uh, that's just the way it is for me. So did that. Did that for two years. An added broadcasting magazine, now broadcasting in cable, and probably soon to be broadcasting cable and Wi-Fi magazine, came out looking for a guy uh, for sports people for a new all-news radio station in Buffalo. And Buffalo I was quite familiar with. My godfather was there, my dad's old army buddy. Uh, I went there for two years, and lo and behold, the L.A. Kings had an opening and uh, applied for that, and it's just gone on from there. So th you can't prescribe these steps. You can't say – but it worked out well for me. But the key, I think, Joel, was to have an open mind as to what might happen. I knew I wanted to do play-by-play, -play, but I also knew I wasn't going to be able to break into the NHL at, at 27 and do play-by-play -play there, even though I had done, what, four years of university hockey by that point in time uh, and more than some of the players that I saw – but that, I thought, was the way to do it. Jack Kent Cook owned the Lakers and the Kings in the forum at that point in time, not to mention the Redskins. And uh, he was always open or always had the idea he would rather hire a professional announcer than an ex-jock. And, uh, boy, uh, that worked out perfectly for me. What was it like doing color as a professional announcer? Working with a great play-by-play -play guy was easy. True. He, Bob just set me up. You know, yeah. Obviously, we knew Bob Miller wouldn't last. He's been there since 1973. I don't know what happens with play-by-play uh, -play and, and sportscasters in Southern California, but let's see. <laughs> Chick Hearn did the Lakers from 1961 through his death in 2002. Vince Scully just retired after 67 <laughs> years, having moved to Los Angeles from Brooklyn in 1958. Bob Miller's been there. Since 1973, <laughs> Dick Enberg just retired, and he was most of his career in Southern California, finishing up in, in San Diego. Uh, Bob Starr, one of the best football announcers I ever heard. I was familiar with him from Peoria, as I was with Chick Hearn, near my hometown. And then all of a sudden, Bob Starr, for a while he was gone to Boston, voice of the Boston Patriots. But then 
He was in St. Louis, Anaheim, back in St. Louis, but doing either the St. Louis football Cardinals or the uh, original iteration of the Los Angeles Rams. He was a great listen and lasted a long time. When did you feel like, uh, through all the different stops that you had taken, that you, well, this is a twofold question. When did yeah. you feel like you were good enough to do this at a higher level and had confidence in yourself to say, I know I can do it at an NHL level. I just need yeah. that opportunity. And then uh, alongside that, when did you finally feel like truly professionally you had made it to the point where other people believed that and you were comfortable that this was a path you could take long into life? I think the comfort, the comfortable uh, aspect of that probably had just come the last week or so, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but I always knew, and it's kind of like what Wayne Gretzky said, if you, 100% of the shots you don't take don't go in. I always knew you have to propel yourself up front, and, and you, you have to, uh, yes, you have to have some self-confidence that you can do the job. I am a tremendously uh, harsh self-critic of my work. But as years have gone along and more people have asked me about things, and I can tell they've truly listened, not just trying to blow smoke, uh, I, I have felt that uh, comfortable enough to move along that way. I, I, I can't say there was one point where all of a sudden the light bulb went on, though. It, it, it's just been an idea that you have to know what's going on. You have to know that uh, there are, where there are openings and so on. Now, some people ask me, do I know about this? No, I'm not interested. Uh, so so I, I don't really keep up that much. I mean, boy, it used to be you would wait for that broadcasting magazine to come out and, and check those uh, – those classified ads in the back. And some of them would be rather fashionable until after you watch them for a while. And one of the most god-awful places to work in the world must have been WDRW in Georgia because they had ads <laughs> all the time and seemed for the same position. Uh, so you know, either a very difficult place to work or someplace nobody wanted to work. Uh, but you learn things like that. And, boy, it's been uh, – a fascinating ride. It really has. When you think about it, yeah, I've had a lot of different jobs, but I really have only lived in my hometown, in Buffalo, in South Bend, in Los Angeles, and here in Nashville. How has doing all of the different things that you've done made you better? Uh, how has yeah. you know being an NBA guy, being an NHL guy, having done baseball, having done football, being as well-rounded as you've been, how has that contributed to turn you into what you are now? You know what I think it's done? I think what it's done is kept me fresher uh, by doing different things. It's not like you have always done the same thing. Yes, I am doing hockey every day now in Nashville and have for 18 years. But I think those other experiences, you don't know how, when, or exactly what it's going to be, but there's going to be some similarity to another situation that comes up that is going to help you out a great deal. Uh, for example... Uh, doing Buffalo Bison baseball in Des Moines, Iowa in 1986, a line drive by Dave Martinez, who had a pretty fair major league career, back to the mound, smoked the side of the jaw of Buffalo pitcher uh, Billy Long. And I knew right away that his wife, Maggie, was listening back in Buffalo. Uh, there wasn't that much online presence at that point, but there was a possibility of it. Mark Cuban had sort of started broadcast.com, uh, but that was a phone service only. It wasn't online yet uh, to listen to other games. So I knew 
that I should be careful and not, dis- you know, describe blood and gore and all of that because of concern for the family, in this case, of the victim, Bill Long. Okay, that's 1986. Fast forward 2005. TV at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit. And all of a sudden, a Red Wings player falls on the bench, on the floor. He has had, as it turns out, to be a heart attack. And we don't know, number one, because we can't see until they get the robotic camera up who it is. We also don't know the disposition. We saw Mike Babcock, the Red Wings coach, motioning for the EMTs to come over to the bench all the way down from the Zamboni door, which was then the, the far bench at the, uh, at the Joe. They've changed the rules now. There must be paddles behind every bench in the NHL because of what happened at that point in time. But uh, that was uh, that Bill Long incident prepared me for that. And I, I think I handled it far better. I mean, there were producers in my ear saying, well, we understand this. We understand that. And I'm going, well, number one, first of all, we have to ascertain who this is. It's Yuri Fisher. We were finally able to see with the robotic camera. But I'm not going to say that he might have been nipped by a stick by a skater going by. I am not going to say though I knew he had had a a history of a heart condition because we only can go, and here I'm going to go back to learning so much from reading Red Barber, the the great announcer for Cincinnati and Brooklyn and the New York Yankees. He always said how he was lectured before he as a young broadcaster did his first World Series, and he was lectured by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Report what you see. Don't report what speculation might lead you to talk about and i that was the thing that we stuck with and we were on the air killing time for 45 minutes uh ironically we did an interview with greg johnson the team captain at the time for nashville and uh it turned out that his career would end up with a heart condition that arose during a a physical several years later but uh, and yuri fisher i still see he uh, works with the red wings uh happy to see him up and healthy uh, but that was uh, that was a scary, scary night, which what thirty years before prepared me, or twenty years before prepared me for it. Uh, if I can circle that circle back that. to the baseball uh, aspect of it, uh, do you ever miss baseball and having done Bison's games for fifteen years almost? I I do miss baseball, and last summer I I made sure I made my first visit to City Field so I could visit with our former manager Terry Collins for a couple days. That was a great, great time. Uh, I'm always on the extra innings package, so I follow the game intensely. My former partner in Buffalo, Greg Brown, is voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates. I visit with him when he comes in the vicinity here, you know, Cincinnati or St. Louis or so on, or even in Pittsburgh on occasion. And as a matter of fact, boy, I bothered him in Washington this last summer, too. Uh, So baseball is always, uh, always in my blood, without any question. But I grew up a Cardinals fan. Just so you know, and uh, I didn't. Uh, it was sort of a happy story. The Cubs finally winning a World Series, but uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't go a whole heart into that. Yeah, I was gonna say a piece of you inside was just yeah. yeah. Uh, how did you build what you built in Buffalo too uh, for the time that you were there? From having done Bison's games to Bills stuff to Bandits stuff to UB a little bit of St. Bonnie. Um, yeah. How do you go? And I guess it's there's no real blueprint for it, 
But from your experience, having gone to one place and being able to build on and do multiple things other than your quote-unquote main goal or main job, uh, what goes into that? Well, the, the key to that was for quite some time there. When I returned to Buffalo in 82, uh, I essentially put together freelance gigs that blossomed into all of that. Uh, uh, some of them at WBEN radio beginning in 1983, uh, with the bills. I also did a thing with, uh, uh, on cable television with the guy who had produced the Chuck Knox show. He wanted me to do a weekly Buffalo bills highlight show. You want to talk about a challenge? They were two and 14, two and 14. And then they signed Jim Kelly and doubled the victory total to four. <laughs> and in one of those games, uh, after they got to four wins, uh, Hank Bulla, the coach of the Bills, decided to try the Canadian defense. He put 12 guys on the field <laughs> in, over, in overtime against the New York Jets. And even with 12 guys on the field, Mickey Schuler was wide open in the end zone for the game-winning touchdown in overtime. But I just uh, – so I cobbled that together. I used my old hockey experiences. I used to help out the Rochester Americans just 60 miles down the down the New York Thruway uh, doing – uh, radio games for them when they would do like 10 television games a year. So that brought me into my first contact on a regular basis with Iron Mike Keenan when he was coaching the Amherst and later Joe Crozier. Uh, so it was just a lot of things that just seemed to fit much better than that glove did O.J. Simpson uh, in the trial. I, I put those things together and uh, had a great deal of fun with it. Later got uh, you know the sports directorship at – because the, the, the Bison's owners, the Rich family, bought WGR Radio. And so they wanted me to be the sports director. And lo and behold, at that point in time, we got the Bills rights, four straight Super Bowls, uh, got the Sabres back to, to uh, WGR. And uh, the Bison's obviously were there already. And then we, with the local marketing agreement, we had, what did we have? Five different frequencies that we controlled. And so the colleges were looking for somebody to do at least a partial play-by-play -play schedule. University of Buffalo asked me, and we got them on the what had been the business radio station uh, down the street. So, but I loved that. It was a legacy station. It had been owned by Gordon McClendon, who was known as the old Scotsman. He used to have the Liberty Broadcast Network in the early 1950s, and he did a recreated, and very accurately so, Major League Baseball game of the day. Uh, and one of, the, one of his announcers was a guy named Lindsey Nelson. Another was Jerry Doggett, who would go on from there to join Vin and the Brooklyn Dodgers and later Los Angeles Dodgers booth. Uh, so uh, I love the idea of just walking into that station where Gordon McClendon had first begun making big bucks. Is a lot of that, um, I, I have to imagine a lot of that is network, you know, quote unquote networking in, in some respects too. And and because obviously there are, there are, Anytime you go to a city, there are already people there that are established and that are, that are known commodities. How do you get people to take the, the shot on you, so to speak? I guess they have to. You have to they have to Earn have their trust, you. yeah. They have to have heard you. And, and I don't know any other way uh, around that other than walking in with a, you know, a gun and saying, uh, hire me now. Uh, <laughs> Which uh, might not work out, yeah. <laughs> it might not work long term. It, it might work short term, but probably not long term. Uh, they just have to hear you, and, uh, and I think a great deal of it sprung from, because I truly believe this, and it was like me with listening to Harry Carey and Jack Buck as a kid. When you're doing baseball, people think they know you, and uh, they hear you every night through the summer and some afternoons, and they feel like you guys are friends, and I, and I think that was a big part of that. You mentioned self-criticism earlier. 
Uh, yeah. What do you listen for? How often do you still get to listen back to yourself? And what do you listen for when you do it? Accuracy. I listen for accuracy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the how often do I get to? I don't sit down during the course of the season and listen to things now because there are too many highlight shows that I, I get to hear back. And I just want to know uh, for my own, uh, you know, self, yeah, was I accurate with the call? And was I on top of it? I don't want to hear the crowd explored and me explode and me 15 seconds later go, oh, what a goal. Uh, that That is what I listen for. Uh, I like to hear um, because we have uh, they give me a highlight mix after every game from the station. So I do listen to that every day. And that's usually about uh, anywhere from three to four or five minutes. And uh, there's a matter of fact, a guy in Pittsburgh was listening online. Uh, a graphic artist, and he's sending me something today, and, and it's sort of a transcription of a triple overtime goal from Mike Fisher in the playoffs this last spring that is supposed to arrive today or tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I, he sent me a PDF, so I had the chance to see it earlier. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be poster size when it arrives here. That'll be cool. Um sense of humor with you obviously just in this conversation uh you, you've, you've dropped a couple things that just kind of make you smirk a little bit uh how do you build that into a broadcast Can't beat a good smirk. <laughs> Can't beat a good smirk. how do you uh, uh how do you build that into a broadcast the right way so that because it's 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 a fickle thing because if you do it wrong everybody goes ah he's hokey but if you do it yeah. right they feel like like you said they know you and they want you in their living room i think the secret is not to overdo it and not to try to do it with every broadcast. If something occurs naturally to you, I don't plan for these things. But, you know, one night, for example, here, uh, there was clearly a makeup call made by the referee. And I just said, well, it's Mary Kay time here, now in Tennessee. A makeup call by such and such referee. Uh, there was going into Oklahoma City, I really thought it was funny. Uh, Buffalo playing the old Oklahoma City 89ers and playing in a facility called All Sports Stadium. Do you realize they never played anything but baseball <laughs> in All Sports Stadium? So I would sign on every now and then. Good evening to you from one sports stadium in <laughs> Oklahoma City. Uh, this is Pete Weber, you know, along with whomever. Uh, so if it occurs naturally to you, uh, I think you're fine. Uh, but if you're trying to be Jerry Seinfeld, uh, every night, I think it's a little bit difficult. Uh, Pete, I don't want to take. Because I'm, I'm never, I am never going to be confused for somebody who approaches this like brain surgery, uh, and I understand that. But if your audience can't have some fun and doesn't perceive you as having some fun, they probably aren't going to stick with you too long. I don't want to take too much more of your time, um, but I, I did want to throw one kind of funny one your way, and uh, we can leave it on that note. Uh, how much do you think you could buy a Pete Weber, John Murphy, 1987 Buffalo Bisons baseball card for on eBay? Uh, I don't know. I have seen it, <laughs> but I think I'm supposed to pay you $10 to take it, aren't I? I it, 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 $13, you can have it now, actually. Wow. <laughs> and that's a 30-year-old card. That's the 86 version? 87. 87. 87, okay. Yeah. Here's the collector's aspect of that. That's the last year at War Memorial Stadium, the the setting for the movie The Natural, yeah. which was filmed there in the, in the summer of 83. 
which had me doing double headers at nine o'clock for like two or three straight nights at one point during the shooting. Yeah, but of but, the movie. but Duke McGuire got to be a movie star out of it, so it was okay. That he well, and and Duke, like he said, he only gained thirty pounds during the shooting of that movie <laughs> because of the incredible catering that was there as well. So that uh, yeah, and Duke and I still converse pretty regularly. He he sent me. Selfies of him and Jim Kelly on the sidelines at the game last Sunday, the Pittsburgh game, where it looked like it was such a pleasant, pleasant day. <laughs> I, I sense some sarcasm in your voice. <laughs> well, well, I think Buffalo Bills fans, I'm part of the Nashville Bills backers. We, when I'm available on Sundays, we go to McNamara's Irish Pub uh, out by the airport. And there's like 120 of us watching the game and, and in great pain sometimes and in great elation others. But it's really been a part of community for, my, for both my wife and myself. And from those Bill's times, when I go to Chicago, I usually talk with Marv Levy. I hear from Bill Pullian on occasion. Well, I mean, I did their radio shows for so long. Uh, uh, same thing with Jim Kelly. And in uh, Buffalo, of course, we had the confusion of two Jim Kellys, Jim Kelly EY, the late writer for the Buffalo News, and obviously Jim Kelly, the quarterback, who has done a great job battling against cancer the last few years. Uh, Pete, I don't know where else to go with you. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. Uh, Peoria? I, we, I mean, we could, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's my ambition. I would love to write a book. Yep. Of, uh, yep. just, just detailing all the great sportscasters that have come out of Peoria. How big's the list? Okay. Jack Brickhouse, Vince Lloyd, uh, Jim Durham, the late Jim Durham, who called the, the Bulls and, and the NBA for so very long. Mark Holtz, the late announcer for the Texas Rangers. Bob Starr, who I named earlier. Chick Hearn. Um, when you get Tom Kelly, the longtime voice of the USC Trojans. Uh, Bill King who Chick Hearn brought out to the West Coast to help fill in for him and then ultimately became voice of the just the Warriors, Raiders, and the A's. Uh, it's a fantastically long list, and I, I think it could be a pretty interesting book for people in your position. Yeah. Uh, not telling you move to Peoria for your future, but uh, it, who knows? It might work out that way. That is Pete Weber of the Nashville Predators joining us here on Play by Play Cast. And by the way, before, I don't want to get myself in trouble here. I've said this whole podcast that Pete Weber is the first hockey guy we've had on as a guest. I've got to pseudo-correct that. Um, ben Holden from CBS Sports uh, was the fourth guest we ever had on this podcast. Uh, it was Cardi, Carter Blackburn, Andy Demetra, Doug Greenwald, and then Ben Holden was the fourth guest we ever had on. And, and I think a lot of people would associate Ben Holden with hockey. Uh, it's the one thing Ben... Uh, kind of made his name in in broadcasting when he started coming up through uh, through the ranks, but now he does so many different things and is really a jack of all trades and a college sports guy and a football guy and a and a, and a basketball guy. Uh, and the way I know Ben Holden is through football, so I associate Ben as a as a general broadcaster. Uh, so in that regard, I said Pete Weber is the first hockey guy we've had on, but I guess Ben uh, fits into that category as well. A lot of really interesting things there, and because I'm not a hockey guy, I'm always fascinated by the way hockey broadcasting works. I, there's so much going on, and it's so rapid fire, and being able to be on top of everything really like no other sport. And I thought the note about uh, reading novels out loud to work on your diction and to work on not tripping over yourself, uh, the lost art of reading aloud 
is one of the things that helps Pete Weber do that. So I've always said, try to take away at least one or two things at minimum from these conversations and, and how you can apply it to yourself and what you do. Reading aloud to try to get better with uh, not being tongue-tied and getting words out quicker and more efficiently and uh, really refining the way that you talk professionally. I thought that was interesting. Uh, just simply reading aloud. We mentioned the personality too, by the way, and the way he just knocks it off offhand or knocks it out offhand. Uh, there was a quote in there about something fitting as uh, not fitting as well as the glove fit OJ. Uh, that was good. Just kind of dropped that one casually. And then I've got to admit, I did steal one from Pete, and this was just subconsciously because it was in the back of my head after I did the interview. Uh, but there was a makeup call in a basketball game that I was broadcasting uh, a couple days after Pete and I did this interview. And I remembered we, we talked about it in the interview. It's Mary Kay time. It's makeup time. And I used Mary Kay time. I was trying to make a, a variation of it. I was trying to say it's Avon time. Uh, I wound up saying Mary Kate time. So, or Mary, not Mary Kate time. That is quite different. Um, that's, that, is, that is very different. Uh, Mary Kay time. <laughs> So I, I guess I have to pay Pete some royalties on that note. But uh, it's those little those little slips that, that make Pete Weber kind of who he is as well. Uh, also, by the way, uh, great broadcasters coming from Peoria. Um, I, I joked that, that I just become the Chiefs broadcaster. Uh, Nathan Beliva, uh, really good job, by the way. <laughs> In the Midwest League is the current Peoria Chiefs broadcaster. His job's safe. Uh, just point that one out real quickly on the end there, the where, where we ended that, that interview with Pete. Uh, so shout out to Nate Beliva if he's listening to this podcast in, uh, in Peoria, Illinois. That being said, we are done for 2016 as a podcast. Started this thing out in the summer. It has grown uh, tremendously. It's gotten some great reception. Got some really good feedback on the Bob Carpenter interview last week and about the book and um, about some of the notes he had we talked about at the end the way he talks to assistant coaches before he does TV games to get a little more in-depth. Um, if you haven't heard the Bob Carpenter interview, you can go back and listen to that. Our archives are all there, free, all 28 previous episodes of this podcast. You can catch up on all of them. If you want more information or you want to dive back in or you want to get your inner walk on, uh, you can go back and listen to everything we've done here in 2016. 2017 comes your way next week. It'll be our first episode of the new year, and we'll go back to the network level. Anish Shroff from ESPN will join us. We wanted to, I wanted to talk about Dream Job with Anish, and we actually didn't get there, uh, which I thought was a good thing. Anish and I just kind of went on a whole bunch of different topics, and uh, it, it turned out really well. And uh, I think you'll enjoy that one. So Anish Shroff is our guest next week here on Play by Playcast. But for 2016, we're in the books. Many thanks to Pete Weber for joining us. Many thanks, as always, to you for clicking subscribe or download. If you enjoy the podcast, many thanks for rating or reviewing it or telling your friend or retweeting or just tweeting or something that draws attention to the fact that this exists because that makes it better in some way. That's a strong oral note to end on we'll call it on that before i tongue tie myself too much further for uh 2016 and for pete weber i'm joel godet this is play by play cast until next week we're out